Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's the New Books Network. I'm Blair Hodges, and I'm here today with Matthew Remsky, co-author of the book Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. Matthew, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, Blair. Thanks so much for having me on. Conspirituality, this book really stood out to me because I'd already been listening to your podcast, which covers a lot of these issues. I wanted to start by talking about the term conspirituality. It's your book's title. It's your podcast title. And you start out by saying you actually drew this name from a academic paper that turned out to kind of be a bait and switch, a little bit of a dupe. So let's start there. Yeah. Okay. So there's a chapter early on in the book called Charlotte's Web, and it's a very disturbing story and kind of a cautionary (laughs) tale uh, from a number of perspectives. So sometime around 2009 or 2010, there was an independent researcher in the UK named Charlotte Ward, uh, and she made the acquaintance of a guy named David Vos, who's an American sociologist of religion with a really deep publishing history. And she had this idea about something she'd been seeing online, which was a convergence between political conspiracy theories and the aspirational spirituality of the New Age. And we're not quite sure that she came up with the term conspirituality because in 2010, there was actually a rap group in uh, Vancouver (laughs) that was calling themselves that. But she was definitely extremely interested in this phenomenon and she wanted to study it with some rigor. She didn't have the proper degrees and she asked David Voas to uh, collaborate with her and lend her some research credibility. And they published this paper in 2011 called The Emergence of Conspirituality. But in the aftermath of the publication, uh, Ward also developed a now defunct website, which took a less scholarly approach to the subject. (laughs) So it was called something like conspirituality.org. And she did not on that site offer a dispassionate view of this social phenomenon, but actually advocated for it as a viable and functional spiritual worldview. So she'd do things like track keywords using, you know, whatever Google Trends or OSINT was available at the time. And she would look at like how many times the word Illuminati was appearing in searches from Poland or Ukraine or whatever. And she got very excited by the idea that people were becoming fixated with the notion that the cabal was being exposed in various places around the world. And she took this as a sign of a kind of global awakening that was on the verge of smashing apart this old order of things. And then it actually got a little bit darker. So I don't know if you want me to go into the into the other bit of the story. Yeah, we will. But I want to also focus first on kind of what stood out from the research that she published, because there's actually some really interesting ideas in that original paper. What were those? What caught your attention? Well, their primary definition of conspirituality as an online movement that marries the feminine coded aspirational new age spirituality with the male coded political cynicism of the conspiracy theorist was really, really compelling. Mm. They said also that there was a way in which both sides of this equation kind of salve or balm each other, that if you are immersed in deep, the deep pessimism of political conspiracy theories, then 
you might be really benefited by this new age promise that your awareness of these things was a sign that you were waking up spiritually. And on the Mm -hmm. other side of it, the notion that if you had been involved in new age spirituality for years and years, you might be quite bored of you know, the mantras and the green smoothies and the endless self project. But if you could then pivot to show how your meditations were actually impacting world events, uh, then that would be very exciting. Uh, And so that was prescient. And also prescient was their focus on its online emergence. Now, back in 2011, you know, we're just in baby steps, and there's no way that they could have predicted what was eventually going to happen. But they were really strong in yeah. a lot of those areas. Uh, but yeah, then there's this other thing going on under the yeah, surface. That, go on uh, with there. You okay. said the darkness. What did you find? All right. Well, at the same time that she was doing this academic work and then this advocacy on the side, she was also involved in some of the more toxic aspects of conspirituality, namely the way in which this discourse like perennially recycles the satanic panic. And so what we know now is that until about 2014, Ward was also using an online alias, Jackie Farmer. And Jackie Farmer was into a couple of things. First of all, she was madly writing a very odd book, self-published book full of typos and, you know, weird stuff called uh, The Illuminati Party or How Not to Be Scared of the Illuminati or something like that. <laughs> and this is a book in which she claimed that she had had direct contact with members of the cabal through various periods of her life and that she knew all about their satanic and pedophilic and vampiric ways. But more consequentially than that, because that book didn't really go anywhere as far as we can tell, uh, Farmer was an online troll who helped to instigate one of the worst satanic panic campaigns in modern British history. Mm. It was a precursor to Pizzagate, actually, uh, and it was called The Hampstead Hoax. There's a really good podcast on it uh, by Alexi Mostris called Hoaxed. Uh, he's an investigative journalist who was able to compile all kinds of primary sources that we didn't have access to, uh, but I would suggest that for your listeners. But what the hoax did was that it accused a 100 adults in the Hampstead Heath neighborhood of London that satanic ritual abuse and all kinds of outrageous activities uh, were taking place around a private school and the church that was associated with it. And all of the accusations stemmed from a single mother of two children. She's a Bikram yoga teacher. She has a partner, a new partner named Abraham, who's kind of a health guru, who's really into hemp sales. And they basically were acting out a grudge against the woman's ex-husband and the father of her children. And, and so there were these tapes released where they're doing these 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 very sort of tortured disclosures of all of the terrible things that had happened to them. And then, of course, they tell the detectives a year later, well, you know, he would beat us if with spoons, if if uh, we didn't tell the story correctly. Uh, and Jackie Farmer was one of the online vigilantes who who viciously prosecuted this story and, you know, doxed a whole bunch of people. And her collaborators were actually charged with defamation and harassment. Two of them went to jail. And Farmer somehow skipped town. Uh, She was never charged, never sued. And to the best of our knowledge, she's now living in South America. So Mm. um, the the weird part for us is that we're quoting this paper for uh, a couple of years as yeah. this like really rich source of information. And it was, <laughs> and we have no idea what the backstory is. And it's a cautionary tale because I think it shows 
how easy it is for someone who appears to be studying a phenomenon in an objective way might have an ulterior motive. And I think more importantly, it exposes the vulnerability of the discipline of religious studies to deceptive or cultic subjects. And I think this is an issue that goes right back to the 1980s when religious studies scholars reasonably objected to the very urgent and swift rise of cult discourse that was right. being used to describe the movements of you know, Jim Jones and Scientology. And the perspective that a lot of religious studies scholars took, and maybe you're familiar with this from your own discipline, was that there's nothing inherently harmful about fringe religious movements, and we have to be very careful about stigmatizing these groups with the language of cult discourse, which makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, it leads some academics into the position of a kind of naive generosity with regard to their interview subjects and their interlocutors. And so... You know, to take a possible extreme example, you can imagine a religious studies scholar, you know, in 2035 adopting an anthropological generosity towards members of QAnon as religious practitioners, you know, and you could do it and it would make sense. You could say all kinds of interesting things about ritual and community and scripture, but you might also be missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, you're focusing on the sympathetic and empathetic element without being critical. I mean, as you said, this is a religious studies debate that continues. Russell McCutcheon's idea about whether religious studies scholars are critics or caretakers. Exactly. Yeah. So you all learned from that. You, You lead the book off with that. And as I've been listening to the Conspirituality Podcast, I've seen a change over time as as you and your co-hosts have come to use the word cult itself in, I think, more responsible and reasonable ways, but also recognizing, as you say, that kind of the, the dangers when you're overemphasizing the empathetic side of things. And I know you've taken criticism from people who say you're too empathetic or too sympathetic <laughs> to some figures, and then others who say you're not going hard enough. So it's it's a hard needle to thread, and, and I, I get that. Yeah, um, right. I think academic gatekeeping is also really important to bring up here because her article was published uh, with this scholar, David Vos, in the Journal of Contemporary Religion, which right. is a reputable journal. It go, it's been publishing since 1985. And so you had no real immediate reason to question her background. And you did, if I understand right, you reached out to Dr. Vos and kind of, <laughs> what was his response? Because if I'm him, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, oh my goodness. He hasn't made any moves in that way, but he has expressed, I, I would say, circumspection about the objectivity with which his colleague approached the subject. He said to us by email, we also had a number of um, voice exchanges, uh, that conspirituality was really uh, Ward's idea, and he he was very interested in it, and he wanted to lend her support uh he 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 was i think he was acting out of a, a real place of generosity but yet there were a couple of things that slipped through that were kind of like incredible and that kind of made it past the peer reviewers as well and i don't know how that happened but in one place she actually quotes david ike as saying well conspirituality is not anti-semitic because, you know, we don't have a Palestinian problem and a Jewish problem. We have a human problem or some sort of bromide statement like that. And because she was able, this is the thing, because she was able to get that in print in a peer-reviewed journal, then she went on to her sort of side gig site and she said, 
we have published a paper on conspirituality that says that it's not anti-Semitic. But the quote comes from David Icke, and I think she identifies him in the paper as a um, British activist or something like that. Yeah. And I imagine that Professor Vos just didn't look him up or, or didn't know who David Icke was, and then nobody on the committee looked it up either. And so this weird... Yeah, I mean the gatekeeping was porous. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and and uh, yeah, here we are. And her work could be self-referential, as you said. It could she could justify her own claims. I think where she was behind the conspirituality curve, interestingly enough, was in believing that doing something in mainstream academia would be worth something. Because I think that element has kind of dropped out. And today, a conspirituality type person would lump academia itself in with the great conspiracies. I mean, for example, I'm a vampire, so I think that's understandable. Uh, (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. But that is to say, now I think she would would probably change her approach there, you know, whatever she's up to. But anyway, it's a really great introduction and I think raises important questions for religious studies scholars in particular about how, uh, how we're dealing with our subjects, the research that we're doing, who we're collaborating with, and the kind of checks and balances that we have in place to prevent the kind of problems that Charlotte Ward a.k.a. Jackie Farmer, uh, kind of got away with. So, And you all, as authors, I mean, you you did some study in, in university but didn't finish with a degree. You you went on to um, into <laughs> yeah, yoga right. circles and stuff. So you're kind of coming back around to academia yourself. Well, I would describe my you know position as kind of frustrated academic because in the same years that I might have been working, slogging through graduate school, I was slogging through cults. And by the time I got out, I just had to work. I was a gig worker in yoga for many years. Then, you know, life happened, there are kids and, and it's interesting. What I enjoy though, uh, except for the precarity of freelance journalism, is that I have found, for the most part, an extremely welcoming and collegial uh, academic environment. There's a lot of people that we've relied on as experts for for our studies, and uh, it's been really good. There's, there's, mm-hmm. I think there's a real push to, at least as far as I understand it, amongst the academics that we've worked with uh, to really get their sort of what is it, the sort of public service scores up? <laughs> like yeah. people are really being yeah. encouraged to like show, and, yeah. yeah, show show what they're actually doing with their, their humanities chops. And so that's been really beneficial. And your book can do that really boldly. You say right out of the beginning, you're intending to disrupt conspirituality by reckoning with the deep anxieties that fuel it. So you're not attacking people that are influenced by conspirituality. You're saying, what can we know? What can we think about... Yeah the kind of emotions and ideas that that result in conspiritualist thinking or that can fuel it. So that's really helpful. And your book begins with these three components of conspirituality. Let's talk about those, about what those three components are. Well, there's an amazing and fearful symmetry of trifectas, and it really comes from the work of Michael Barkun on the structure of conspiracy theories. This, too, is pegged in Ward and Vos's paper, so they got this right as well. But Barkun identifies three principles that are central to the psychology of conspiratorial belief, and the first is, nothing is as it seems— And the second is everything happens for a reason. And the third is everything is connected. And if you spend any time in a yoga class or in a Buddhist meditation center or any kind of wellness environment or a new age church, those three axioms do not sound paranoid. What they sound like is the promise of a new way of being in the world. 
a way in which you know you can see through the illusion of ephemeral reality because nothing is as it seems or a world in which you can question whether you really are isolated or as atomized as you feel because everything is connected and a world in which you can push back against the dread of meaninglessness by saying that everything happens for a reason and these are really the hinge points of conspirituality because it's in these three axioms that the agitated and uh, anxious feelings of conspiracy theory begin to be you know mollified by new age aspirations it's where they collide and are conflated and what we saw especially accelerating during the pandemic was this drift could go from one to the other in the way that the conspiracy theorist could be encouraged and emboldened and even empowered by this positive reading of the world. And on the other side, the New Age or wellness enthusiast could have their relentlessly positive and upbeat and you know bromide-filled discourse given a little bit of gravitas. And as I said, Ward and Vos actually say this in the paper. They say that it's very important that these two components kind of mutually embrace. Mm. There's a sense in which it can be scary and exciting and, and kind of terrifying, but also reassuring as well. It's kind of feeds itself. Yeah, right. And this speaks to an essential kind of a little bit abstractly, I would say, a cultic dynamic that runs throughout a lot of the discourse, which is that the influencer is simultaneously scaring the shit out of you and offering you salvation. Right. And in cultic discourse, especially the work of Alexandra Stein, this is described as the sort of cueing of disorganized attachment in the high demand group, where you're always looking towards the leader for solace, even while they're scaring the crap out of you, even while they're threatening you. There's something that heightens your need for love and attachment and commitment from them in relation to just how horrible the world is that they're describing. Right. And for listeners, when you use the word cult, that's a big part of what you're talking about. You're using it in a technical sense of a high demand group, a charismatic influential leader, a controlling environment, sort of separation from other influences and and un basically unhealthy practices within that dynamic so it's it's yeah. not the idea of the simplistic brainwashing or things like that it's very different from popular idea of what a cult is yeah i think the technical definitions that emerge out of the 80s and 90s are still useful to some extent i mean we can get into that a little bit later but uh things are changing with the online environment mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i am talking about a technical series of relationships involving charisma at the center and disorganized attachment you know, sort of radiating out from that center. Right. So these influencers will pose a problem and then offer a solution. There's a term that you use in the book, spiritual bypassing. It's an important yeah. term. It's a tactic that they can use to exploit a real world crisis and also sidestep it as well. So give us a sense of what spiritual bypassing is. Yeah. So with spiritual bypassing, I mean, let me take the example of Donald Trump. The, the first thing I think we have to understand is that the real cultural work that most of the yoga and wellness and new age economies perform is that they sacralize the status quo. The incessant message from this material is that everything is always perfect as it is. Things are unfolding according to plan. There are never any mistakes. God never loses. You're on your journey. You're exactly where you need to be. 
So in these positive frameworks of New Age spirituality, this means that there's no such thing as a political problem or an environmental problem or a social problem, ultimately, because every difficulty is a kind of mirage. And if you're not careful, that mirage will distract you from the truth of your own perfection, which is all you really need to contemplate in order for heaven to be achieved on earth. And this is how we get the channeler Lori Ladd you know, in front of 250,000 Facebook followers in December of 2020, describing Donald Trump as a light worker. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a way in which the most openly disruptive, amoral clown of a human being can be transformed into yet another aspect of the divine play. And so when Lori Ladd does that, she's like giving this primary, she's teeing up this key example of spiritual bypassing, whereby what's right in front of your face as perhaps even an existential threat is transformed into something that actually is illusory. It's part of this kind of plan that you don't understand how it's unfolding, but you should sit back and watch the show uh, and keep doing your practices. Yeah, so spiritual bypassing is a way to kind of avoid, I would say, like real-world political engagement. Yeah. It's offering solutions that involve personal enrichment or you know meditation or spiritual practices that are supposed to address real world concerns but but really don't <laughs> basically right and the answers that spiritual bypassing wants to provide are always hackneyed uh they are always premature they involve some kind of reduction of the problem of at hand to an inappropriate abstraction so there's a lot of category error stuff going on as well. Like, so if the, the, the person who is reading A Course in Miracles, which is Marianne Williamson's favorite book, who discovers that they or are told that they, they are diagnosed with stage three cancer, uh, the spiritual bypassing response as advocated by A Course in Miracles is to understand that at its root, sickness is some problem that you have with God. And the bypass is right there. It sort of does an end run around the fact that you probably need to have a detailed conversation with your oncologist about things right. that you don't understand, about things that are hard, right? Things that are beyond your, that, that aren't contained within the bromide answer, right? So mm -hmm. spiritual bypassing is also a, a process of simplification that provides a lot of immediate relief, but it's, it's kind of like a, a junk food that way. Two examples come to mind from your book. The first one is Marianne Williamson's response to some of the Donald Trump stuff. So she was running for president against him and he would be up there doing terrible things. And her response were, were very basic things like, you know what the problem is? We actually need love. And she yes, would say right. these like broad things in order instead of saying, you know, Donald Trump is saying very racist things about minorities. He's ramping up xenophobia, anti-Semitism. We need to address this. Instead, it's like we just need more love. So there's a way of avoiding the real nitty gritty of that of what's actually happening and just going to this much broader vague thing. So that's one. The second thing is COVID. So all the stuff you described about cancer, for example, all of the stage was set already for conspiritualist minded folks to look at the pandemic and do the same thing they'd been doing about cancer or any kind of health maladies in the wellness industry to say, oh, this is actually a perception thing. COVID masks aren't going to help you. Vaccines <laughs> are evil. 
we actually need this spiritual bypassing solution. Right. Yeah. And uh, there are some sort of technical aspects to the arguments about vaccines and masks that also involve a kind of simplification of basic biology. With masks, for example, the thing that's so offensive to the wellness advocate and the new age conspiritualist is that their breath is not only holy and divine, but they also are taught to believe that they are the ultimate arbiters of self-awareness, right? So the thing about the, the, the communication about masks is you may be sick, not only sick, but harming other people and not know it. Right. And that is something that is just completely intolerable to the person who grows up in the wellness world, who is taught that their intuition about their bodies, especially, is absolutely iron core dependable. And yeah, so, so the solution is uh, my breath is pure instead of COVID is airborne. And what that means is, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's a good example. Okay, well, by the time we get to chapter six, people might be alarmed at the chapter title based on what we've said so far, which is conspiritualists are not wrong. All right. Yeah. But it's not a Charlotte Ward moment where you're like, haha, actually, I believe in the Illuminati. Um, you're actually trying to address the underlying anxieties and the real complaints and issues that fuel conspirituality. Talk about some of those. What are conspiritualists identifying that are real issues? I want to thank you for this question because I think this is actually probably the most important chapter of the book uh, mm. because it gets into the really sticky territory of how honest we can be in liberal democracies about our hypocrisy, about how basic systems in society are corrupt or dysfunctional, uh, and also about how terrible people get away with terrible behavior basically all the time. Now, we've talked about healthcare a little bit as a site for the development of conspirituality or health issues. Uh, and that's very, very, you know, central to our project because so many of the stories that we heard from listeners and interview subjects was that the descent down the rabbit hole of institutional distrust began with something like a cancer diagnosis where either the person felt ignored or brushed off or bankrupted by like the insanely high medical bills. Or, you know, there are women who will unfortunately report the common experience of not having their pain taken seriously or being belittled by medical staff or feeling as though they lost all consent in relation to how they were giving birth. And in a general sense, conspirituality expands in cultures where a commitment to public health has shrunk. And that's why America has been a hotbed of it. Mm. Um, I wrote this investigative piece for The Walrus Magazine in Canada a couple of years ago. And the focus or the title of it was when QAnon came to Canada. And the truth is, is that it did come to Canada, but it didn't really sink in its teeth. And the reason for that is that the social safety net here, which is I'm speaking from Toronto, just doesn't create the same intensity, the same globalized sense of institutional distrust. The vast majority of Canadians love and adore their universal health care system, despite what, you know, conservative politicians are saying or how they want to pick it apart and sell it off to their friends. So, so conspiritualists aren't wrong about how they are regarded as medical subjects. They really are very much aware of everything that Michel Foucault describes, right? Even if they've never heard his name or if they, right. you know, can't stand all French people or whatever. Um <laughs> 
But but then there's the issue of like accountability for crimes and abuse. They right. are not wrong that we don't know the extent to which Jeffrey Epstein abused girls in order to manipulate political power. They are not wrong that the Catholic Church over the last several decades has been revealed to basically in part be a global sex trafficking operation that shuffles around priests and does whatever it can to limit liability. They are not wrong about surveillance capitalism and how it's monetized basically every avenue of human activity and identity uh, and how it's bloated the banks of its captains. So their cynicism is accurate. Don't forget environmental stuff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that is the that is at the heart of RFK Jr.'s sort of groundswell yeah. campaign, which is looking like incredibly potent at this point, in my view. But they are accurate about the realities of late stage capitalism. They're they're not wrong about any of it. What they're wrong about is what the response should be and how they're going to come up with it. And and in some ways they're not even to be blamed for how they come up with it in this sort of fractured flotsam and jetsam sense, because in many cases these are creative and altruistic people who use the best resources they have to do their own research. And they've been given a broken internet to pursue a broken dream, you know, and in general they just need better resources, beginning with some kind of sense that it's okay to work together on things, uh, it's okay to share in a social project, it's okay to form alliances and coalitions to do the work that democracy like used to do, because you just can't get to safety through, you know, pseudoscience and, you know, the advice of wellness bros and by following the fetishes of whatever yoga influencer is speaking most passionately that week. They also have the advantage of being able to offer some pretty clear-cut solutions as well, like Public health measures for COVID could be pretty complicated and science, the understanding of the science shifted, right. whether masks would be used, whether they wouldn't, et cetera. It's much easier to say, actually, if we all would come together and meditate or if we all would take this supplement or something, this would be the solution. So they have the advantage of untested and untestable solutions that are also way easier than what is on offer from public health agencies and stuff. And don't they look like they're pro-social? Let's all get together and meditate or let's sure. all get together and go to a kirtan or something like that. Yeah. They look like they are community based. And actually, we have this paradox because the public health measures that uh, officials were trying to implement throughout the world were actually antisocial in nature. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of these people would say uh, the love and connection that we share with each other is our real strength. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's absolutely true. And you just can't do it right now for yeah. a while, please. So we can infect each other. <laughs> right. So I think what it boils down to is that regardless of the absurdity of the pseudoscience or of Marianne Williamson saying that if everybody meditates at the same time, they can you know, shift the course of a hurricane or they can improve their immune system is that the instinct that these folks are expressing comes from a real place of concern mm -hmm. that's really deep. It's really tender because it takes a special type of anxiety, I think, to buy into and sustain the kind of fever dream that we're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about like highly sensitive people who are, you know, expressing uh, a lot of fears and concerns and they're they're reaching into whatever they know in order to to find answers for themselves. Yeah, one of the things that was alarming to me during COVID was seeing how conspiracies can cut across political allegiances. Typically yeah. I 
there's the stereotype of, okay, the more conservative you are, the more likely you are to dismiss science or whatever. What you all found in your own circles was watching liberal folks, progressive folks start to get connected to these conspiracies and start to buy into them. And you talk about the yoga industry, for example, and yoga's history in terms of body fascism. I wanted to spend yeah. some time on that because it helped me understand how it was that these sort of progressive-minded folks were getting sucked into these conspiracies. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that the modern yoga, wellness, self-care, new thought, new age scene has really solid roots in an early modern period, specifically in the global north, specifically in relation to the emergence of nationalistic and proto-fascist ideas about the body and the soil. And the short form of this answer is, is that like Nazis loved yoga, which is 100% true. But like, you know, it, to go beyond it a little bit, we see that everything that we've inherited from that period begins with a deep sense of anxiety within the white middle classes of Europe at the tail end of colonialism. So this is a period in which northward immigration is beginning to open up. There's a lot of white guys who are very concerned that they're going to be replaced by brown people who are, you know, more fertile. And mm -hmm. that particular anxiety is central to the message of physical culture as put forward by people like Eugene Sandow and Bernard McFadden, uh, who were both obsessed with what they believed was a coming white racial suicide in which urban lifestyles and effeminate men were going to depress the birth rate and quickly change the complexion of the great white north. And also war too, right? Like we wouldn't be able to win the wars anymore because we're not muscular people. I exactly. And you, you can hear almost verbatim uh, many of these same sentiments expressed by Joe Rogan and most of his guests, right? Mm -hmm. So simultaneously and relatedly, there are these populist anti-communist movements in Northern Europe that begin to focus really closely on the perfection of the body as a way of consecrating and blessing the national spirit. And this is where the famous fascist phrase blood and soil comes from, the notion mm -hmm. that genetic purity is going to be expressed by and supported by the purity of the actual fatherland or the motherland. And then there's this, with yoga, there's this very weird era in world history where the burgeoning Hindu nationalist movement in India, as it prepared for and visualized independence, became very interested in European physical culture. And they created a kind of modernized yoga that was really an indigenization of Swedish gymnastics and harmonial dance and bodybuilding and weightlifting that was all the rage in the colonizing countries. And for you know listeners who have practiced yoga, they might be familiar with the fact that there's this huge emphasis on symmetry, on balance, on you know presenting the body in some sort of courageous pose, expressing strength and serenity and nobility, while also concentrating on things like purification and organic eating and purifying your sex life and not masturbating and a whole mm -hmm. range of conservative behaviors that we then see echoed a hundred years later in the intensely heteronormative, often transphobic rhetoric of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. When we describe body fascism in our book, we're not talking about an openly or conscious ideological project. It's more like the cultural memory of a time 
of anxious responsibilism where the nation state was telling the individual that it depended on the individual's health and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that's why contemporary yoga and wellness are almost uniformly ableist in their attitudes, continually suggesting that the person who is sick has committed a moral or spiritual failure. And it just turns out like these are echoes of fascism and they are super efficient at making people strive for a bodily ideal and then shamed for not obtaining it. When I was reading this, it really challenged my ideas about yoga in the West. I felt like yoga had kind of been imported. I recognized it was being westernized. I saw I was a little uncomfortable with that because I felt like it was appropriation. And then I come to find out that there was actually this earlier mix where the West was influencing India and and how yoga was developed there. And for you, you were a practitioner, you were involved, and yoga had been a big part of your life. As you were learning about that, was there any kind of, I mean, was that alarming? Was there disillusionment? Were you like, wow, because the, there's a romanticization that happens of thinking, these practices I'm doing go back to ancient days, like this is ancient wisdom. And now you find out how influenced they were with these turn of the century concerns. How did you feel about that? I was mixed between being a feeling profoundly disillusioned and also somewhat liberated from a kind of piety that I had taken on that in a strange way replaced the piety of my Catholic upbringing. <laughs> mm. So so in, on one hand, understanding that this was all a reconstruction and that there was something fictional about the premise that yoga was 5,000 years old, at least in the way in which, you know, your neighborhood studio was teaching it. That was very relieving. And it harkened back to earlier realizations I had had about how the imaginarium of the Catholicism I had grown up with was really kind of ossified in about 1850, right? Like, mm, yeah. you know, it's like they, they built those cathedrals, they came up with the artwork, uh, and then except for Vatican II, right. uh, it basically stayed the same, right? Yeah, Vatican II was your reboot of that, but it was a reboot of that 1800. Yeah, yeah and so... I felt relieved of this notion that I was trying to recreate something. And I was also relieved by the self-awareness of my own Orientalism, that the mm. reason that I was so attracted to yoga as uh, a kind of invented ancient historical religion was that I felt spiritually and culturally empty. And I was looking towards an idealized notion of, you know, Asian wisdom culture, but Asian culture in general, in right. order to find some sense in which I could be at home in the world. And that really dehumanizes everybody because, yeah. you know, uh, everything is complicated. History churns and changes. And, um, you know, there, there are no original things. There are reconstructions and there are ways in which we become self-aware of that. And that can help. So I was also for a while very preoccupied with the sense that, uh, oh, there's a cultural theft going on here, uh, that somehow Western people are stealing something ancient and holy. And then when mm -hmm. you realize that that argument is not only historically dodgy, but it is instrumentalized by Hindu nationalists today mm -hmm. to suggest that ancient Indian culture somehow had solved all mysteries, and that's what makes it better than Islam, and that's what makes Brahmins better than everybody else, then it feels a little bit nauseating to mm -hmm. dig into that history. And you were in those circles and seeing, as, as COVID was sort of 
becoming a, more of a global problem. You were seeing people in those circles start to talk about things in strange ways. You started seeing hashtag save the children. And so you were seeing how these yoga and wellness circles were getting sucked into the conspiracy theories. And you talk about the, the individualism of practice that kind of played into that, right? There's a sense of like self-development. It's ironic because you talked about like there was originally kind of a collectivist idea about we need to perfect our bodies to perfect the national health, et cetera. Then it became this individualized thing. Instead, that component actually was kind of gone by the time COVID came around, which was a huge reason why conspiracies could take off in those spaces. You know, this is a really great point that I haven't quite thought about in this way, is that the militarized, let's do these uniform exercises on mass does feel like a collectivist project. And how does it breed a kind of individualist sensibility? Well, maybe part of the answer to that is that as an individual, you can only really know how successful you are at your spiritual discipline through a kind of hypervigilance and performativity. Like it, you really have to, as an individual, you have to assess yourself or surveil yourself constantly against the ideal. And so the, the threshold for achievement and success is really kind of self-monitored hmm. and that doesn't really that's not about mutual aid that's mm -hmm. not about i'm going to do the best that i can or everybody according to their needs you know versus <laughs> everybody you know and everything according to their resources it's not about that it's more like there is a national abstract perfected body that i must support by mimicking it and mm -hmm. so if you if you succeed at that great if you fail at that then it's on you but your your question about individualism is so important because it also it gets into this thing about the yoga and wellness cultures that we interrogated in this book, especially in a chapter called uh, That's Us in a Headstand Losing Our Cognition. <laughs> Great chapter titles in general, by the way. Thank you. And that's where we track how there was like 40 or 50 years of globalization of these subcultures that made uh, them vulnerable to the enthrallment of political influence through a specific project of depoliticization. We went in, in this chapter through almost the entire archive of Yoga Journal, uh, which is the trade magazine for the yoga industry, to see how often and in what contexts they referenced any subject that, that might be even a little bit political. And the answer was mm -hmm. like almost zero, right. except for one writer who became an editor for a while who expressed this kind of weird above the battlefield sort of idea that the old paradigms of left and right are now collapsed and we need a new kind of political thinking that doesn't separate or stigmatize us. Mm -hmm. And we hear that same message from Marianne Williamson, from RFK Jr. So it's not gone anywhere. It's, it's actually, I think, it's it's moved up in stature. And yeah, it's led to this situation in which Let's say in I remember in 2008, as I tried to do some organizing work for the Obama campaign, just right. online amongst my yoga contacts. And this was, you know, he's running against Mitt Romney. And it's like a no brainer for for most of my apparently or putatively liberal and progressive friends. And the feedback I got was. Don't bring politics into my yoga Facebook group. Uh, yeah. I do yoga to get away from politics. 
And, you know, some of those comments might have been from people who legitimately wanted a separate space for their contemplative selves. But I think the majority of those comments actually described a basic orientation towards the world, which is that traditional political activism was low vibration um, Mm. and it would get in, in the way of your ego dissolution process. So now we're talking about a demographic that globally is worth up to about $80 billion that has been told by its gurus and its influencers that politics is a dead end. And meanwhile, they've also been sold a number of neoliberal messages that they don't want to have contradicted because they've been told that they alone are responsible for their health. They should not trust institutional sources of knowledge, that their yoga gurus know more than conventional doctors when it comes to healing. They've been taught to attribute their own health not to luck (laughs) and the availability of evidence-based medicine when they need it. They've been taught they can heal themselves, and that means they're going to have a natural allergy to any kind of mutual aid project. To believe that the state should intervene is a huge insult, and to not only intervene, but to intervene with something very common and basic and uniform, like this 0.5 milliliters of vaccine Mm -hmm. is what everybody needs, and Mm -hmm. that really is insulting to people who want like bespoke wellness treatments and also maybe don't gather at your yoga studio for a while because we need to socially distance etc right so you've you've nailed this idea that david dark has called beyondism david dark is this great christian thinker and christian critic um, and he talks about beyondism as an attitude that positions ourselves above politics which is actually fundamentally a political move, right? Because it's reactionary and it's reactionary yes. too, actually. Right. Yes. Yeah. So beyondism can basically be like, hey, I'm I'm above politics. Don't bring that into my space. But then it can make plenty of room for conspiracies about QAnon and very political things uh, while it's feigning being above them because it kind of sets up this fake left versus the right. We're not in that fight while usually trending to the right. (laughs) One of our subjects in the section called uh, Gallery of Rogues is, I think, a premier practitioner of New Age Beyondism. And I kind of wish I had known the term uh, before so we good. were we got into, the, got into the book. But this is Charles Eisenstein, who does exactly this by talking about left and right political motivations and sentiments and values as being part of what he calls the story of separation. So he immediately applies a kind of metaphysical lens to the notion that people have actual values differences based upon power, uh, based upon you know, possessions based upon identity, based upon history. And he he tries to say that we need something new on top of that or above that. And what that means is that anything that comes into his sphere that becomes interesting, he can then interpret from this sort of meta level that is metaphorical and is speaking to deep psychology. So for him, you know, he wrote a couple of essays in which he suggested that QAnon makes sense because, not because it's true, but because it's appealing to the mythological or archetypal core of our being or something like that. And so 
I mean, there's some of that argument that I think should sure. be reasonable, and we make some of that argument about conspirituality itself, but we don't disconnect it from the political havoc that it's wreaking, because it doesn't make sense. It's actually a real thing in the world. You didn't get above it just because, you know, you've spent, like, most of your working year giving lectures at places like Burning Man. And it must have been frustrating because when you were just trying to do something as simple as set up a Obama barbecue or something back when Obama was encouraging these local organized gatherings, you were, yeah. it was, it's pretty casual. And you, that was pushed away. But then later on, you see all this Q stuff get this super political stuff all of a sudden invade the space. You're like, wait a minute. I was just trying to have like a little, a little uh, picnic here. And that was unacceptable. But now all this stuff is acceptable. Let me just say, too, that just in that comparison – you know, this is not something in the book, but I think it's a really good thing to be aware of is that there is an intense amount of just social awkwardness in yoga, wellness, and new age spaces. There are endless, very uncomfortable. Um, you know, sharing circles and, you know, meditation sessions in which, you know, <laughs> there's a very sort of programmatic and formalized way in which you're supposed to talk to each other or make intrusive eye contact or like use the same jargon and contrast it against let's have a barbecue and talk about how we can get our elderly neighbors out to the pole is just yeah. too mundane. It's just mm. too plain. It means you have to look your neighbor in the eye and talk about mundane things. Yeah. And the thing about there's something really terrifying about that to somebody invested in the aspirations of New Age religion. Mm, that's helpful. That I really appreciated the part of the book where you had gone through the yoga journal and traced that shift to this self-help empowerment model for yoga spaces away from more communal-minded ideas. The third part of your book talks about a lot of the influencers themselves, people that have become popular on social media, some of the thought leaders, the primary vectors, I think, of, of misinformation and, and sometimes disinformation. And so Let's talk about some of those to get a sense of their approach, their beliefs, their audiences. And one of the first questions that you get about these people is if they actually believe what they're selling. And I would call this the problem of the pious fraud. Uh, right. Are they a pious fraud, meaning do they believe what they're selling or are they just a fraud? That's a great uh, little, what would you call it, like an oxymoron uh encapsulation. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it is one of the most vexing questions that came up over and over again was determining the level of earnestness. We got it all the time from listeners like, does Dr. Kelly Brogan really believe that no one should take SSRIs or is she, you know, really only trying to sell her coffee enemas and, and kundalini yoga? Does okay. Guru Jagat really believe that David Icke is a credible source of information and commentary, or is she making a cynical alliance with the new demographic that will help build her market? They're really judgment calls. You can't come away from any of these people with a firm conclusion about the good or bad faith in which they're operating. It's really it, it's like it would be between them and their therapists, and I don't think many of them go to therapy. But <laughs> there are some that seem to stand out as true believers. For instance, there is little doubt in my mind that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. absolutely believes what he's saying about the relationship mm. between environmental, agricultural, and medical sources of 
pollution and corruption and impurity. There's just too many pieces of his personal story that allow for a coherent belief structure to express itself, even if you're looking at him from the outside, you know, just from his public statements. Mm-hmm. I think you have to be like extremely conflicted to be so wrong about one particular public health intervention. And, you know, there are some things to say about uh, signs that that Kennedy is conflicted as a person. It's almost as if um, I, I almost when I when I see him now, I, I think of there's a part of your brain that under an MRI is just going to be blacked out, right? Like it's like and it, it represents where this piece of the public health puzzle is going to be processed. And if a thought just goes through that dark area, it's going to shut off and it's going to send you off into into somewhere else. But then as far as integrity goes, there is the opposite end of the spectrum where we find people like J.P. Sears, who seems to have no moral center at all. Uh, sometimes he doesn't even appear to have a personality. Uh, Let me describe him real quick for yeah. people that might not know. You might have seen goofy viral videos of a long, red-haired, youngish man with a beard who's trying to do comedy, and it's not quite funny. And then you realize, oh, he's also like a right-wing reactionary guy. This is J.P. Sears. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can look him up and and weep. Um, he <laughs> he has really. I mean, it's like he's a an automaton of audience capture. Where he yeah. has he has followed one sort of right wing I don't know shiny object after another from uh, oh you know January sixth is is Antifa and CRT is ruining your kids and now the transes mm-hmm. are coming. Um, yep. Then we've got somebody like Mickey Willis uh, who in the Wait, book. Before we go to Mickey Willis, yeah. can I just say that that brings up the the problem of the algorithm because I think I think social media companies bear a lot of blame for some of these phenomena where they're trying to keep eyeballs attached to screens and have found that some of the conspiracy stuff can tend to keep more eyeballs and. So so there's the great New York Times podcast, The Rabbit Hole, that talks about how YouTube has been guilty of this and how inside YouTube whistleblowers have said, we saw this coming. We warned YouTube about this. Yeah. And so for someone like J.P. Sears, it makes total sense if he's trying to market himself. And your book traces his marketing going from this sort of, you know, comedian kind of trying to be funny guy to figuring out how to game the algorithm to grow his audience. And it's by becoming more and more extreme and talking about anti-vax and talking about anti-trans and so forth. So the algorithm itself is a huge issue. Yeah, and and actually um I think there's we've we've coined a phrase in the book called algorithmic charisma which describes this yeah. kind of feedback loop between the uh, attractiveness of in terms of the attention economy of the inflammatory content and the reward system to the influencer as they follow it. Like it's it's mm-hmm. a real sort of you know, hamster wheel uh, that actually just spins to this sort of nuclear speed mm-hmm. after a particular time. So 100 um, percent, it's algorithmically driven. You saw I want to say one. Too. Yeah. You saw Teal Swan do it as well. Yeah. You have had some great episodes of her. Now, I, th- I think she's now on the whole trans panic thing as well. Right. Um, and you, you show that there's kind of a pipeline between these type of influencers to get to there. And I think really laying out what that pipeline is, is enlightening. Well, thanks. I I think it's, I mean, and it really complicates 
implicates this original question of are these people high on their own supply or are they really attracted to contrarianism, to being at the heart of ostensible truth-telling role of their prophetic personality? Like, what are they actually doing and do they believe in it? And and a big clue with regard to belief came for me when in doing this, this article on QAnon and Canada uh, a couple of years back now, I interviewed a number of Canadian yoga people who had been pushing QAnon content. And I quickly found out that not only would nobody go on record, but they also uh, they would want to walk back their engagement really, really quickly and surreptitiously because they didn't actually know what it implied. I think one of the tragedies of the algorithmic drive is that it captures people in a series of belief statements that they don't actually hold sometimes uh, or they haven't investigated. And that's incredibly tragic. It's like It's like the parasocial relationships are pushing these buttons that produce automated almost skinner box responses yeah. uh and and the the actual emotional commitment or the the political awareness isn't even there to support them uh and that's a real problem and i feel like sometimes we all do it there's a, we can't know everything about everything and so we do look to those parasocial relationships someone i trust and regard really well i'm more likely to retweet some article they tweeted Without having read it. Uh, right. I, I try not to do that very often, <laughs> but I'm more likely to do that with somebody I've already trusted because right. I have that parasocial connection and, and they have a track record with me. So it's easy to see how that can happen in any circle. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about the sort of downstream effects of charisma, which, you know, you can have a well-developed critical faculty and you can still be influenced by it. You can be caught in its radiance in that sort of feedback loop of attention and projection and externalization that's created between the influencer and the influenced. Okay, we can circle back to Mickey. Is it Willis? Yeah, Willis. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was just going to say that, like, you know, with regard to authenticity, in the book, we dubbed him the New Age Zelig because he seems to pop up in all of these different, like, incoherent discontinuous places just to blend in with whatever crowd he happens to be around so you know yeah. a, a little bit of a Forrest Gump character we could use that too but he's he's added the skill and the or the superpower of his modeling male modeling and film career to facilitate that and you really get this sense with Mickey Willis that he's never not on stage right like he's always mm. throwing the blue magnum look and he's always framing himself because he's doing all of the you know lighting and camera work for his stuff as some kind of like i don't know sacrificial saint or something like that and so in general with all of these figures we began to employ uh the language and it's in the book as the distinction between the believer and the booster you know and it's not like people fit solely into one category or the other because everybody is monetizing the disinformation. Everybody is incentivized to boost. But I think actual commitment rates to the religious principles or the ideological principles at hand are are quite variable. And just to note, Mickey is the one who created the Plandemic yeah. documentary. Correct? Right. So Version 3 is out soon. Uh, please oh, try good. to ignore it. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that speaks to another thing is you say at the outset of the book that talking about these figures also risks introducing people to these ideas in, in ways that can influence them negatively. Like there's a sense in which am I, you know, people say, okay, on Twitter, don't quote tweet a bad account or a bad actor because you're spreading yeah. that information, stuff like that. What do you think about that as you've been doing this research, as you're doing the podcast and talking about these figures, that negotiation of engaging and and combating disinformation and misinformation versus helping to kind of spread it? I mean, you probably could be lumped in with the conspiracy, like you're attacking them because you're part of the evil cabal kind of a thing. Oh, for, sh for sure. We do get that. And that's, you know, par for the course. I think that the advice that we've gotten from people like Imran Ahmed of the Center for Countering Digital Hate is really solid around, mm -hmm. like, don't use the tech to help the people who are abusing it, which is, yeah, don't quote tweet, don't share the actual materials. Uh, so we have, we do have some editorial policies around uh, we try to cite everything that we produce in the podcast, but we, we will not direct people towards cursed content. But I think that the discussion around pushing back against disinformation can really get locked into a kind of war of attrition if it's left on that level of um, how are we going to safely expose and debunk things? Because the the fact is, Brandolini's law or whatever it's called uh, is that you know it is far easier to produce larger content of bullshit than it ever is yeah. to actually push back against it. People who fight disinformation will not win on volume. I believe they will win because they create new communication strategies, even through different media and on various platforms to actually produce positive stories and content. One of the things that we try to do, and we frame the book with a couple of these stories, is we have a series on our Patreon feed called uh, Listener Stories. And uh, with everyone, we're talking to somebody who either has recovered from being in a cult for many years, or they have, they're telling a story about how they fell into a an alternative health rabbit hole and they didn't seek treatment for their serious cancer, or they came to an understanding of what their conspiritualist partner needed as they were dying. And these are very intricate and human and novel-worthy stories that I think are essential to combating not just the disinformation, but also the fire hose of demoralizing Twitter that just <laughs> that, yeah. that is just overwhelming. Like, yeah. like I think that... I, when I, I have so I have two sons and they are both as of this week madly playing Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> and when I think of the kind of incredibly gorgeous, creative, generous world that those producers have created for millions of tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of people around the world, I am like that is something that mm. is a pathway for the seeding of epistemology of pro-social values 
Now, I don't think like a single hero running around a landscape and beating up on Goroks and putting together their own cars is really like pro-social. But there's something about the landscape and the shrines and the and the and the mysticism and the history seeking of that environment and its pleasure that I think contains some of the answer to our situation. And I feel the same way when I read Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm. That's that's really helpful because I, I wanted to ask you about how you've avoided becoming sort of the cynical, like a Sam Harris type who, you know, someone who becomes disenchanted with religion or spiritual practice for legitimate reasons, but becomes so cynical or so just extremely materialistic, ext- a very simplified black and white epistemology of the way that the world works. It seems to me that you and your co-hosts remain open to the spiritual nature of of existence. That is to say, some sort of transcendence and and meaning that connects us, you know, but, but that's also rooted in the real world. In fact, one of my favorite lines from the book is that a fetish for transcendence devalues everyday life and worldly concerns. So you're warning against just seeking transcendence, but you also don't fully dismiss it either. And so I wanted to hear from you about that, having faced disillusionment uh, and and coming out of high control cult groups, that you still engage in yoga and that you still engage in practices beyond just science, which we love and which we honor, but which we also see as limited. First, I want to say that the three of us on the podcast have different orientations to this, uh, and I would probably place myself on the least agnostic end of what's a fairly atheistic perspective. So uh, I'm also distinguished by being the only Canadian uh, and much more leftist in my politics. But um, (laughs) what I would say is that I think it's actually hearing some of the arguments of people like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens again 10 years later. And for me personally, because I know my colleagues might have a different take on this, For me personally, understanding just how vapid and biased and highly politicized and how in service of empire that entire critique of religion was because it focused on really kind of um, creating a caricature of the diversity of Islam. Listening to the wholesale dismissiveness of the religious impulse or religious culture is really something that I associate now with a kind of armchair pride that doesn't understand that religion is just another way in which community functions around the world and that there's no definitive Catholicism, there is no definitive Islam, there's no even definitive conspirituality, because we have this understanding now through religious studies of lived religion, mm-hmm. that the the actual materials that you use to create your spiritual and religious meaning and imaginarium are individuated. They are historically contingent. They are deeply personal and related and tied in with your family history. And so you can't really make broad statements about religious experience at all. And none of that stuff is going to go away. Mm-hmm. Like the only thing that the new atheists or the four horsemen or whatever really mm-hmm. did, I think, for culture at large is that they created a 
sort of pocket of literature for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that they added more rationalism or whatever, or they, because they, they, they painted the world in really broad strokes. And I think it's really unfortunate because folks who maintain a kind of religious or spiritual orientation, and I would sort of put myself into that category, although I don't really know what to call it anymore, <laughs> uh, except that there is just something extra beyond my uh, language, beyond my intellect, beyond my capacity to understand things that I think has to be beheld with a certain amount of, of humility. Mm -hmm. Those impulses are not going to go anywhere. It does not make any sense to me strategically in terms of alliance building. It doesn't make any sense to me politically to insult or to downgrade people's religious understandings of the world. I think it's much more uh, human and approachable and pragmatic to try to understand what those religious impulses are really trying to communicate and when they are shared specifically. Mm. So yeah, to me, investigating conspirituality is about investigating not the problems of spirituality, but ways in which spirituality can be weaponized by political paranoia and all of the downstream effects that come from that. I think that gets at the secret sauce of your book and your podcast with with your co-hosts and co-authors, Derek Barris and Julian Walker. You all do come from a little bit different perspectives. There's, yeah, there's not a sense, you're not, you're not just a chorus saying the same things. There's different perspectives, but all of you are taking a really hard and serious look at the same thing and bringing those different perspectives into a kind of dialogue. And I think you're kind of showing people how you can talk to others who have certain differences from you. Was it difficult to write the book when you all kind of had a little bit different of orientations? Did that affect the things you covered or some things that you didn't cover? You know, we fight very, very passionately <laughs> in Slack about a number of things. And occasionally that spills over into staff meetings. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, especially Derek and I have a lot of sparks. And Julian is a fantastic uh, whisperer for both both of us and and he does a great peacemaking role and i think all of our conflicts are in good faith we 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 do make an effort to try to understand very clearly how contingent our points of view are where we come from how we're influenced and we try to be as honest about those you know value developments as as possible and I think that because we were so open about disagreeing internally, and sometimes we disagree, you know, on the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, we push back on each other. But I mean, I think that we can do that and maintain a kind of generative tension because we are honest about what our lane is. And our lane sometimes is, is, is guardrailed or boundaried off by things that are just beyond our scope. So so we know if we have political differences that we're not a political analysis podcast. <laughs> and so we know that if we don't have expertise in a particular culture war issue that that is not necessarily something that we have to address. And so I think sometimes our disagreements have actually been protective in the sense that they've made us narrow down our lane to say, okay, well, we know what we're strong in. 
we know what we can agree on. And I think that that played out in the book where we didn't really have any substantial disagreements about inclusions or directions or how the basic structure was going to go. We went through a lot of changes, but um, the writing process was pretty fast, very collaborative, and it was really clockwork. And and Mm. that was lucky because we had this brutal, brutal deadline and uh, we made it. And it covers so much. I want people to check out this book, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat, because it covers so much ground. All right. I've got two more questions for you before we go. The first one we've touched on a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about it. And that's your experience as both a practitioner and a researcher. So you still engage in some practices. You're also critiquing wellness and yoga circles. Does your research side impinge on your practice side? How do you negotiate and navigate that? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It totally does. It's sort of like dissecting a frog. Yeah. Like when you dissect a frog, you have to kill it. You got to kill it. Yeah. Yeah. We murder to dissect, as Alexander Pope said. Yeah. And I think that I've lived with that for about 10 years. And yeah. I think that my perennial answer is that whatever yoga practice or meditation practice is going to be if it's going to be helpful it has to be novel in some way and this really runs counter to the way in which i was educated in buddhist meditation practice and in yoga where repetition is kind of like this foregone conclusion that you only you know really progress spiritually when you surrender yourself to the utter boredom of <laughs> of the the repeated actions so that you can yeah. i don't know smooth yourself down like a river stone or something but i think that if you have been working as a cultural critic in that space for long enough you're just too aware of how uh, motivated how problematic how intrusive instructions can be you you become very aware of how the repeated instruction can be a form of kind of overlaid reconditioning and that's not what you want like what i want generally from contemplation is i want the relief of a different perspective i want the relief of gratitude i want to be able to log the off not only online but also in terms of my own neuroses Mm. and i think every instruction in the spiritual space that i've come across it has to bring up skinner again it has an extinction rate it will do that for a while and then you'll get used to it and then it'll become something that you're telling yourself to do and i think Mm -hmm. once you get to once i get to that point that's the sign that i have to stop and that it's getting old and that i have to figure out something else and that means you know often i'm an autodidact and you know i don't follow instructions very well and and uh <laughs> and and all of that stuff but but it does not cancel out the value of of practice that i think was instilled in me as a little boy as somebody who was taught to pray and then quickly learned how boring that was and yeah. and tried to do things to make it more imaginative all right that's helpful the second one is about your advice and recommendation for people who've had loved ones get sucked into these circles maybe they're getting emails from their mom that that are alarming yeah. uh even spouses sometimes kind of get pulled into this and what you've seen as effective ways to engage with people that we love about these kind of conspirituality ideas 
You know, all of the best advice that we've heard and have tried to put into practice when it's appropriate about dealing with loved ones um, in the situation you're talking about is that to the extent that you're able, um, you try to maintain the relationship because as a hyper-individualistic and neoliberal worldview, conspirituality just can't offer stable or nurturing relationship. And so if we're talking about a friend or a family member or a partner, you know, you've already got a number of things to bring to the table that this mixture of paranoia and pronoia like just can't bring. And so I would say that it, it's most important to recognize that whatever your friend or loved one believes, they have a really good incentive and really good reason to believe it. Maybe they were neglected by the medical establishment. Maybe they were immiserated by the economy. Maybe they are survivors of or allies of survivors of sexual abuse and their attempts to you know, secure accountability have all failed. And this is something you can empathize with. And if you help the person in that way through empathy, you might also take the next step, which conspirituality doesn't do, which is like try to get them the help they need if, if that's appropriate. Yeah. That said, you know, what we saw with COVID was, you know, a lot of inevitable uh, zero-sum conflicts where like a red-pilled family member would simply refuse to wear a mask at a family gathering or a hospital visit. And that conflict just can't be worked out on the spot because it's too urgent. Because not wearing that mask means that someone might die in two weeks. And so that's a huge challenge. So there are these acute conflict zones, which are just are really difficult to resolve. But I would always outside of those, look for places to be patient, places to be generous, but not without, you know, compromising your own boundaries or safety. All right. Thanks for that. That's Matthew Remsky, co-author of the book, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat with co-authors Derek Barris and Julian Walker. He researches yoga, the wellness industry, online influencers, and conspiracy thinking. You can hear more of his thoughts and his co-author's thoughts on the Conspirituality podcast. I highly recommend that show. Some really excellent discussions on there. Matthew, thanks so much for spending the time with us and talking about this great book. Thank you, Blair. Fantastic questions. It was a pleasure to talk with you. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend checking out my other podcast. It's called Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast to fan the flames of your curiosity about identity, history, religion, politics, culture, and more. The best late night conversations all happen around the fire, and I'm packaging them up for you in podcast form. Fireside with Blair Hodges. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>